this morning, for this morning, for the judgment day. Well, let's step back for a moment. Let's talk just a little bit about some theory. So the deterministic model of the universe in a nutshell, it sounds like a philosophy course, huh? Well, the premise is basically that with enough data, the actions of the universe and all things it contains can be predicted. Uh, actions appear random because we don't have enough data to fully understand and model a particular system. If you knew everything about a thing or a person down to the molecular level and all of his or her actions, both past and present, could you predict what that person would do in the future? And aside from actions at a quantum level, the answer, at least from a physics perspective, is with sufficient data, you can actually get pretty close, at least the theory says. But from an intelligence collection and analysis perspective, we call this all-source data collection or total data collection. And of course, while today it's not possible to collect data down to the molecular level relating to a person's total being, it is possible to collect massive data sets on individuals with the collection only limited by the current state of technology and of course, by the law. Let's take a look. Trigger is another event. And so you can apply this idea to gang crimes, you can apply it to burglaries, you can apply it to automobile theft. There are many types of activities for which this idea is very relevant. Thousands of pieces of crime data from the LAPD, including locations, times, and dates of past crimes, are processed by the software program known as PredPol to calculate and predict the potential criminal activity for an area at a certain time. And those predictions are delivered back to the police departments in a way that allows them to use it in a real-time fashion. So I'm going to code 100 in the area. At roll call in the Foothill area of Los Angeles, where UCLA tested the program in 2011. So today we're going to hand out the predictive policing maps. Officers receive maps showing the areas of predicted activity for the next shift. Red boxes on the map highlight the hotspots, areas measuring 500 feet by 500 feet, that will require extra patrols. So the officers know that's the highest probability area where they should be looking for a crime to be committed. And we ask them to get in there and disrupt the crime from occurring or deny the criminal the opportunity to commit the crime. That's just what happened in 2011 in Santa Cruz, California, where officers were patrolling a hotspot, putting them in the right place at the right time to stop an assault. We came here, uh, did extra patrols, and we were, the crime. we were able to stop a crime in progress before it got worse. We are helping police fight crime by giving them the best state-of-the-art mathematical models and algorithms to take the data from yesterday and today and figure out what's going to happen tomorrow in the field. With mathematics and social sciences, police have a new weapon in their arsenal helping not only to protect and serve, but also to predict a crime before it happens. Okay, current systems are actually rather basic. Uh, they've been shown to be somewhat effective in predicting likely types. So as you can see, that was something that they were doing 11 years ago. 11 years ago, they were able to pilot it 
in California with some very good confidence to avoid crimes happening or escalating. That was 11 years ago. And like this guy said in his 2020 speech, you know, if we do get the identity of someone, everything from their social interactions, texts, emails, likes, hate, subscriptions, down to their molecular level, then with really good confidence, we can predict what this person is going to do. And we talked about the difference between free will and determinism, and that was highly important. Now, someone will say, well, that's, that's insane. Well, it is. But if they're doing it to you, then someone's doing it to them too. And you'll realize that the invasive technology of surveillance that the New York Times is crying about in this next piece I'm going to show you, the New York Times actually put out a piece uh, June 22nd, 2022, that they're concerned about this surveillance, the surveillance that's already on U.S. soil, the surveillance that has been happening for over a decade, the surveillance that is coming to a close, and to tie it all up in a bow, they need your drop of blood, they need that piece of legislation to make it happen. They already stripped away all your rights. It's the final nail in the coffin. It's exactly what you're fighting for. Here's the New York Times. How do you call it? Virtue signaling. A warm brown glow. Your, Your voice, voice carries a soft tone. Your nose creases when you smile. But the things that make you unique can also be used to track you. And in China, your appearance, the technology you use, and the sound of your voice are all types of information the Chinese government collects. The scale of this surveillance and the infrastructure supporting it are larger and more elaborate than previously known. For over a year, the New York Times has analyzed more than 100,000 government bidding documents. They spent two decades and were collected and shared exclusively with us by Chinafile, a digital magazine published by the Asia Society. In these bidding documents, government agencies from across the country detail what surveillance products and services they need, from phone trackers to equipment used to collect iris scans and DNA samples. These documents explain the strategic thinking behind the purchases and invite companies to bid for project contracts. Together, they reveal China's ambition in collecting vast amounts of sensitive personal data. From the local to national level, China aims to gather as much information as possible on its citizens, centralize this data, and use it to maintain authoritarian rule over its entire population. Let's start with the cameras, the foundation of China's surveillance state. There's a lot of them. Analysts estimate that over half of the world's nearly 1 billion surveillance cameras are in China. These cameras surveil and store the images of all who cross their paths. A bidding document from Fujian province in the country's southeast details the police's plan to improve their facial analysis system. It reveals just how much data their facial recognition cameras are capturing, so much so that they required a database 20 times as large. In this case, the system detects faces from video feeds and stores 2,000 images of those faces every day. Police keep them for six months. 
there are 7,000 video feeds in this Fujian system. So that's 2.5 billion facial images stored at any given time. All those images are for just one province in China. To put that in context, that's three times bigger than one of the largest U.S. government facial recognition databases, which, which is run, run by, by Homeland Security. Security. Oops, let's stop right there. So they have, how much is the population in China? It's 20% of the world. And they have a little over twice as many images as we have in the U.S. Their population is one to two billion, right? We have 350 million. And yet we have more images. I want you to take that in for a second. Take that in for just a second. And then what did she say? Homeland Security. I want you to. I want you to understand who Homeland Security really is. I want you to pay attention how it has evolved. Eight hundred thirty-six million images are stored in the United States every day for three hundred fifty million citizens. Two point five billion images are saved for a nation that has a billion people, but I would assume, over a billion people, I would assume that Fujian should have, what, maybe about, what, a little bit over what they have in the United States as a population, but they're collecting more data, right? But the data is pretty scary. You can think about it. Little Fujian, all of the United States, they take more pictures. I want you to think about this for a second. Homeland Security has, this is the only thing they're talking about, but how many images are captured by private businesses? Let's talk Walmart. Let's talk Target. Let's talk, you know, whatever shopping mall you go to. Let's talk your nail salon. Let's talk your school. Let's talk the police station. Let's, 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 let's. See, they're not all looped up to Homeland Security. See, those they can sell to someone else for Homeland Security, depending on someone who wants it. So what they're referring to, this is where I'm pointing this out. China. All of those images go to China. So all these images in this province go to China because that main contractor with the government has contracts with all the other businesses. Here, they're just referring to the images that Homeland Security takes. It's not talking about the ones at Walmart. It's not talking about the ones you know in your neighborhood. It's not talking about Ring Doorbell. It's not talking about Target. It's just talking about Homeland Security. I want you to conceive just how many images your country takes that aren't being mentioned here. Because in China, it's all encompassed. Just think about that for a second. Throughout China, authorities are highly strategic about where they place cameras. Dozens of documents show that police detail the locations and precise viewing angles for the cameras. For example, there are instructions for a camera's placement on the northwest side of this apartment building in Beijing and across the street from this kindergarten in the city of Jiaxing. Police don't just watch from the outside either. They want to put cameras inside the lobbies of these hotels, including at this franchise location of American hotel brand Days Inn. The hotel's front desk manager told The Times that the camera does not have facial recognition capabilities and is not feeding videos into the police network. One document from the town of Xichao in Guangdong province reveals the philosophy of local officials as they aim for maximum surveillance. 
They've determined that cameras should go in places where people fulfill their most common needs. The document lists coordinates for camera positions. They match locations where people shop, where they live, where they learn, and travel. To take advantage of all this footage, police around China rely on software to analyze and extract more information. State media promotes the software's ability to identify a person's race and ethnicity, the color of their clothes, and whether they're wearing a mask or glasses. Documents show this technology can search a person's image in existing databases for a match. These search results often contain more specific information about the person, like their national ID number, name, sex, and permanent address. While this type of technology is readily available, the documents show the government doesn't think it's being used widely enough. In one, China's top police agency complains that the analytical capabilities need to be better and are too decentralized. The government is determined to not only fix these consolidation issues, but to branch into new and more invasive surveillance technologies. While cameras track you in public, much of your private life is on your phone. Your location, the apps you have, the things you say online. The government is using all of this information to monitor you without you even knowing. Police use phone trackers to help connect your digital life to your physical location. Our investigation found a dramatic expansion of their use across China. Sometimes the trackers are invisible, hidden within cameras. Others look like Wi-Fi routers. Here's how authorities put this technology to work: Your phone is constantly searching for the strongest available. So haven't we seen all that already? Those Wi-Fi router things on your camera things. Remember Johnny Five? I posted it maybe six to eight months ago on on Telegram. It's not only to uh, triangulate your location and connect you physically to your digital life, but it's also that it hears you, right? Why is the New York Times complaining when this is happening right outside? I think they have a Johnny Five right by the New York Times building in New York. Sounds like hypocritical talk. Available network signals. Some trackers, known as IMSI catchers, imitate strong cellular signals. Luring your phone's connection before capturing its unique identifying information. Other trackers, like Wi-Fi sniffers, lie in wait on public Wi-Fi networks, intercepting and analyzing your phone's outbound communications. Since these trackers can be installed throughout a city, authorities can use them to map out a phone's movements. Let's say you post something online that the government finds incendiary. Police can go to social media companies and find out your username, phone number, and your device ID. They can then look up that device ID to see what the trackers have captured. This way, police can find out where you've been and where they might be able to find you. These trackers can also exploit weak security practices and might be able to screen the apps you've installed. And those apps can say a lot about you. For example, police from a county in Guangdong bought phone trackers and hope they can use them to detect which phones have a Uyghur to Chinese dictionary app. 
Users of the app are likely part of the Uyghur ethnic minority, a group that is heavily surveilled and oppressed by the government. In 2019, a New York Times journalist walked around a city in Xinjiang where most Uyghurs live. There, he found 38 Wi-Fi sniffers in just one neighborhood. We traced one of the earliest phone tracker purchases to Shandong Province in 2015. Seven years later, according to our analysis, all 31 of mainland China's provinces and regions have them. Phone trackers are powerful tools on their own, but here's what happens when you combine them with other data. These are internal product presentations we obtained from MegV, one of China's biggest surveillance contractors. MegV's technology compiles various types of personal data from mobile devices, cameras, and other sources. MegV told the Times its aim is to make communities safer and not quote about monitoring any particular group or individual. But this product is already being used by authorities. And can display a person's movements, clothing, vehicles, mobile device information, and social connections. It shows us the type of dossier that authorities could generate for anyone. But we found that the pursuit of your personal data goes even further to the biology of what makes you who you are. This is the next frontier of surveillance in China. The government is actively collecting voice prints, iris scans, and DNA samples from its people, and maintains that the primary use of this material is to track criminals. Chinese media often promote these efforts, but the documents repeatedly show that police are gathering troves of material from everyday citizens too. Like in the city of Zhongshan. Here, a document reveals that police are adding devices to record audio from at least a 300-foot radius around their street cameras. The document outlines their plan to use voice recognition software to analyze the audio and add people's voice prints to a database. The police hope that combining voice recognition systems with facial recognition cameras will help them identify targets faster. But since your voice, much like your appearance, alters over time, our investigation shows Chinese authorities are starting to collect personal identifiers that are less likely to change over time, such as iris patterns. One document reveals that in Xinjiang, where millions of Uyghurs live, a government contractor built a database that can hold iris samples of up to 30 million people, enough to cover Xinjiang's entire population. We discovered this same contractor is now building large iris databases across the rest of the country. Documents show that the Chinese government is collecting another type of sensitive biometric data from broad segments of the population: DNA from men. Authorities can use genetic tracing to catalog entire generations of men, so a database built today will be useful far into the future. China says it uses these genetic databases to solve crimes. Criminal investigations around the world also rely on genetic information for this same reason. Why chromosome DNA is passed down from father to son. Given a genetic sample from an unknown male suspect, investigators can compare the man's Y DNA to samples already present in their databases. 
A match indicates a relationship along paternal lines, and helps pinpoint the suspect's family history and geographic ancestry. Because of privacy concerns, many countries limit DNA collection to just criminals and suspects. But our analysis shows China stands out in its ambition to build ever larger databases of male DNA. We identified the earliest effort in Henan Province in 2014. Today, male DNA databases exist in at least 25 out of mainland China's 31 provinces and regions. The logic behind this ever-expanding campaign is clear. A bidding document from Gansu Province points out that as populations and family lineages grow, so too will the value of male DNA collection. In the same document, the police describe their objective this way: Do not miss a single family in each village. Do not miss a single man in each family. From faces to DNA profiles, iris scans to voice prints. The Chinese government is consolidating vast quantities of unique personal data with one ultimate goal: to build a comprehensive profile for each citizen, accessible anytime, anywhere, up and down the ranks of the government. This sweeping surveillance effort lays the groundwork for even more advanced methods of control. The documents show that the state is even working towards predicting potential threats before they materialize. So hypocrisy. I think in one of my articles in Big League Politics in 2018, I put out an RFP that the FBI had put out to private companies to、uh, voluntarily provide biometric identifying information of people. That was from it was 2003, not 2006. I apologize, 2003. And be like, what? Yeah. See, what China is being called out for is something we're already doing. The citizen log already exists. They know where you are, who you talk to, and what you do. They know every little facet of you. And remember, when people were like, "Well, I got banned from Twitter," and you know, I used another email. I remember when Laura was banned. I was like, "Don't. You need to buy a new phone." She was like, "What? You need to buy a new phone. It's connected to your device." What? That's invasive. I was right. So that's exactly it. The bottom line is, is that they're calling China out for things that we are already doing. Now we're going to shift gears because I'm going to show you what Durham's really working on and what's really happening. And this is why what we're doing is very important. So let's get ready to party like it's 1999 for a second while we shift gears because it's going to be pretty fun. I think you guys are going to understand what has been going on. And when you hear people giving you hopium, you have to understand the integral part of this being a success is you, the people, because you are the storm. Go! Don't you want to go? Don't you want to go? We could die any day. Well,、uh, yesterday I played in a large room with no light by Prince. That a lot of people don't know the song.、Um, it's actually quite、um, specific,、uh, a very specific song. But now we're going to move into the law. And we're going to talk law, and I'm going to show you exactly what's been going on, and hopefully you'll understand what Durham has been doing. I've told you, I can't spell it out for you. I can only show you where the water is, and if you choose, you can drink. So, in order to understand all of this, we must visit a very specific law. You know, when people come from beyond the grave, damn, 
that shit bites people in the ass. It's beyond the grave shit that you got to be worried about. Because, you know, the seed may have been done and it had may have happened, but you're now starting to see how we're about to reap it. The Watergate scandal had a profound effect on modern American politics. The Watergate scandal had a profound effect on modern American politics. In response, Congress passed the Ethics in Government Act in 1978 as a means of providing accountability in government. One provision of the act authorized the Attorney General to request the appointment of an independent counsel by a court called the Special Division. The purpose of the independent counsel is to investigate high-level civil servants and prosecute them for violations of federal criminal law. Congress granted the Attorney General sole removal power of independent counsels for cause. Independent counsel Alexia Morrison investigated the role that various officials in the Department of Justice played in potentially obstructing a congressional investigation. Specifically, Morrison alleged that certain Environmental Protection Agency documents had been improperly withheld and that Solicitor General Ted Olson had given false or misleading testimony to the Congressional Subcommittee during the investigation. Morrison asked a federal court to issue subpoenas requiring production of the documents. Olson fought the subpoenas and challenged the constitutionality of the act as a whole. Olson argued that Morrison had no authority to act, much less seek subpoenas, because the portion of the act authorizing independent counsels violated the Appointments Clause of Article 2 of the Constitution by allowing appointment of a principal officer by someone other than the president. Olson further contended that the act violated separation of powers principles by reducing the president's power to remove executive officers. The trial court found in Morrison's favor, denied the motion to quash, and found the defendants in contempt for failing to comply with the subpoenas. Olson appealed. A divided court of appeals reversed, finding that an independent counsel is a principal officer, not an inferior officer. And as such, the court of appeals held that the act is invalid because it does not comply with the appointments clause. Morrison appealed to the United States Supreme Court. Now, before we continue, I want to point out, you can search it on torysays.com or Big League. I pointed out that Mueller was an inferior officer. I point that out to you. Chief Justice Rehnquist, writing for the majority, found that the act was constitutional. First, Rehnquist made clear that the requirement that officers be chosen by the president and approved by the Senate under the appointments clause applied only to principal officers. Congress was free to allow the president, a department head, or the judiciary to appoint inferior officers. Rehnquist concluded that an independent counsel created by the act was an inferior officer because the independent counsel could be removed by a higher executive branch official and was vested with only limited authority, jurisdiction, and tenure. Next, Rehnquist noted that interbranch appointments of inferior officers is authorized by the accepting clause, and Rehnquist concluded that vesting the appointment power in the judiciary was both logical, given the difficulty involved in having the executive branch investigate its own officer's misconduct, as well as permissible, because the job was consistent with the traditional functions of courts. The majority concluded that the creation of the special division does not conflict with Article 3 of the Constitution, which limits the judicial power to cases or controversies, so long as the division did not do anything outside the specific functions authorized by the Act. Finally, the majority turned to the question of whether the Act violated separation of powers principles. 
Because Congress vested the power to appoint the special counsel in the judiciary and the power to remove the special counsel in the attorney general, Congress wasn't usurping the power of the executive. Further, neither the requirement of good cause for removal nor the act as a whole prevented the president from performing those functions constitutionally vested in the executive branch. In light of this, Rehnquist concluded that the act did not violate separation of powers principles. Justice Scalia dissented, basing his opinion on an originalist interpretation of separation of powers. Scalia argued that the act unconstitutionally deprived the president of exclusive control over a purely executive function, that is, conducting criminal prosecutions. Scalia further took issue with the characterization of the independent counsel, who was subordinate to no other executive officer, as inferior, and concluded that the limitations on removal without cause violated the precedent set in the case Humphrey's executor versus United States. Morrison versus Olson was a hugely important and highly controversial ruling that had a significant impact on separation of powers issues, interbranch appointments, and the use of independent counsel. Congress allowed the act to expire in 1999 and created the U.S. Department of Justice Office of Special Counsel to replace it. Justice Scalia later referred to this case as the most wrenching case he decided, both because it came out wrong and because Chief Justice Rehnquist wrote the majority opinion. Rehnquist had been head of the Office of Legal Counsel and in Scalia's mind should have been more aware of the importance of the president's prosecutorial authority. All right, so Scalia, let's listen to what Scalia, what his dissent was, because you're going to see where this is all going. You'll understand. I, I am one of the eight who filed dissent in this case. And I, I suppose when one dissents from as many of the court's decisions in one day as I have today, you get to uh, discuss it. I discuss it because I think it's uh, one of the most important opinions the court has issued in many years. To many people, it may seem that this case is of some political interest, but is not likely now or in the future to have any proximate effect upon their lives or the lives of their children. It does not, after all, involve freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of religion, or any of the wonderful guarantees of our Bill of Rights. That is wrong. If you took a survey of people and asked them, uh, name Justice Scalia's most important, greatest opinions, Morrison versus Olson's dissent would appear on almost every list. Which is interesting because it was a lone dissent. I think he had a very, very astute grasp of the real-world dynamics of power and how law would change relationships of power. And that's what is at the heart of the brilliance in this dissent. At the time the decision came down, most people in the academic world, most law professors thought, the majority was right, Justice Scalia was wrong. As time has gone by, it's almost a consensus that Justice Scalia was right. Post-Watergate, they had just gone through the Nixon presidency, and there was a widespread, even bipartisan sense, that you couldn't trust the president to investigate himself or his highest-ranking subordinates. The conclusion that emerged out of Watergate was we need a system in which a an experienced prosecutor has enough independence that the president can't just turn around and fire that person. 
Congress introduced by statute in the Ethics in Government Act an alternative mechanism for policing what it saw as the prospect of executive malfeasance. A panel of judges would appoint a special prosecutor called in this case an independent counsel to investigate the activities of the person in the executive branch whose conduct was being questioned. And that's what happened in this case. The controversy that led to the appointment of the independent counsel was this dispute between congressional committees and environmental enforcement agencies in the executive branch. It was the responsibility of the Office of Legal Counsel, the office that I headed, to provide the president with constitutional advice as to whether this was an appropriate occasion to exercise executive privilege. That angered Congress, and Congress decided to conduct an investigation over how the Justice Department handled that entire controversy. Morrison was appointed as what is called a special counsel. The special counsel was a law enforcement official, technically part of the Department of Justice, but not actually answerable to the hierarchy of authority in the Department of Justice. He had, by statute, all of the authority of the Attorney General of the United States to pursue criminal investigations and prosecutions within her defined authority without having to answer directly to the Attorney General or to the President. Ultimately, the Independent Council subpoenaed documents that related to the work that I had done. So we resisted the subpoena, told the independent counsel that we would not produce the documents, and then told the court that we were not producing the documents because the independent counsel did not have the right under the Constitution to subpoena those documents. That set up a judicial challenge to the existence of the independent counsel. The big argument is whether or not you could have a special counsel who operated independently of the president because she could only be removed for very narrowly defined causes. Justice Scalia's dissent today is famous for his very, very strong and powerful rhetoric about that aspect of the case. The majority opinion written by Chief Justice Rehnquist looked at various different aspects of the independent counsel provisions and said, well, um, it's not too much power. It was deliberately structured as a case-specific, fact-specific. You have to look at the particulars of each instance. So it doesn't have the character of what we might call a rule. And this is also one of the reasons why Justice Scalia got so upset about it. A little bit of erosion here, a little bit of intrusion here. In the totality of circumstances, it's not too bad and it's tolerable. It's the kind of uh, situation that Justice Scalia recoiled from. But I do think the principle that Congress has the capacity to create some structure for ensuring an independent impartial, legitimate investigation of the president or the president's top aides when there's a strong enough basis for believing they may have committed crimes, that the principle that there's room in the separation of power system for some structure that allows for that, I think is appropriate. And that's what is not permitted under Justice Scalia's very uh, I would say simple 
mechanical approach to this complex problem. Justice Scalia's dissent in Morrison versus Olson was a very forceful, very powerful, rhetorically flourishing defense of the position that the president has to be able to fire at will, at least at a minimum, anyone who's exercising law enforcement power within the executive. I would say Justice Scalia disagreed with the majority for both a kind of formal set of doctrinal or constitutional reasons and because he thought that beneath those reasons, there were real questions about the distortion of the balance of powers. That the president must have the unified and uh, exclusive power to execute the laws so that we the people could hold the president responsible for the ways in which the laws were executed. Justice Scalia would have us believe that the framers of the Constitution made a conscious and focused decision that even when the president or his or her top aides are being investigated, it's still the case that the president has to have full control over that investigation. I don't think the framers focused on this particular issue. They talked about politically removing the president from office, obviously, uh, because the impeachment process is established in the Constitution. Uh, But they simply didn't give any thought one way or the other as to what the structure for an investigation might be uh, of whether the president or his or her top aides had committed crimes uh, and what the structure for prosecuting that might be. Didn't the framers consider the possibility that there might be a rogue president and rogue law enforcement machinery? Of course, not only did they consider it, they wrote six, count them, six separate provisions into the Constitution to deal with that. Those are the provisions for impeachment and removal. The Congress believes that the president is abusing, misusing power. There is a procedure specified in excruciating detail in the Constitution for impeachment and removal of not just the president, but lower level executive officials who Congress believes are misusing their power. I think is an extreme view. Uh, of the unitary executive branch. You might believe that the president constitutionally has to have control over the administrative agencies and still take the view that when it comes to potential crime that the president himself has committed, the president should not have and does not have as a constitutional matter the power to completely control the investigation into these matters. I think it's fair to say the majority opinion was pragmatic in the sense that it was looking to particular consequences, although it wasn't entirely clear what consequences they thought they were looking to. Uh, And Justice Scalia's approach can fairly be described as formalistic. You come up with very clear rules and you deduce from those rules the outcomes in particular cases. I agree with the many people who have said the dissent is a brilliant piece of analysis I think it is brilliant in its understanding of how that statute would work in operation, but I don't think it follows. In fact, I think it's a very long leap to go from the brilliant realism of his descriptive insights about how this statute would work to his, in my view, very simplistic constitutional conclusion that there's a straightforward, simple answer to this 
inherent conflict of interest problem. Frequently, an issue of this sort will come before the court clad, so to speak, in sheep's clothing. The potential of the asserted principle to affect important change in the equilibrium of power is not immediately evident and must be discerned by a careful and perceptive analysis. But this wolf comes as a wolf. It is a wolf. And, and I'll show you where the panic lies. So I did write an article about Adam Schiff a, a very, very long time ago. And we have talked about the Policy Comitatus Act. I think we need to review this in two minutes. So that way, the next video, you're going to be like, wait, how's that related? And then you're be like, oh, now I get it. New questions tonight about an army combat brigade being trained, trained to deal today. with civil disturbances in the United States. The Posse Comitatus Act of 1878 generally prohibits federal uniform services from carrying out domestic law enforcement duties, except in cases expressly authorized by the Constitution or an act of Congress. Critics say the brigade's training goes against one of the founding principles of our country, separation of military and civilian government. Luis Schiavone has our report. They've spent 30 months on the streets of Baghdad. Now the 1st Brigade combat team of the Army's 3rd Infantry Division is back in the USA. The Army Times reporting, quote, they may be called upon to help with civil unrest and crowd control or to deal with potentially horrific scenarios, end quote. The question arises, why? And isn't that what the National Guard does? Infantry Brigade is designed to engage an enemy with maximum effective force and destroy it. That's not the sort of thing anybody wants to see in, in the streets of the United States. Almost 5,000 strong, the brigade is based at Fort Stewart, Georgia, under control of Northern Command, who tells CNN, quote, the primary purpose of this force is to provide help to people in need in the aftermath of a WMD-like event in the homeland, so that were they called to support civil authority, those governors or local state jurisdictions that might need our help, that they would be responsive and capable in the aftermath of an event like this, end quote. On Capitol Hill, questions about how the Pentagon determined that a thinly stretched military with two conflicts underway could spare these troops. That's a misuse of assets. Those assets can be deployed, I think, more efficiently somewhere else when you have the guard that you can call up on a moment's notice. Historically, the posting is unusual. In modern history, Army troops have been used at extraordinary junctures. Under the first President Bush to contain the 1992 riots in Los Angeles, under President Lyndon Johnson in response to Detroit's 1967 riots, and in the grips of a depression by President Herbert Hoover to contain Army veterans demanding their bonuses. All actions says historian yes, Robert exactly. Dalek, undertaken exactly. by? Unpopular presidents uh, uh, on edge about uh, their capacity to lead, uh, to uh, invoke public support for whatever it is they think needs to be done. Lisa, the Army Times journalist tells us that the story has generated intense public interest. And four weeks into a flurry of questions about the report, the Army finally contacted her and they requested that she publish a clarification that containing domestic civil unrest was not part of the 1st Brigade mission. Luis Givoni, thank you very much for that report. That was from 2008. Now, let me. Let me indulge you in something more current. Oops, sorry. Dramatic development today inside a Russian courtroom. WNBA superstar Brittany Griner pleading guilty to drug smuggling for telling the judge she packed in a hurry. Did not mean to carry drugs into Russia. Griner could though face up to oh, 10 years. I didn't want to have that on yet. Hold on a second. All right. I couldn't get it off the system. 
Actually, where is it? There we go. All right. So now you're going to see how this works. You're going to see how it works. Decentralization, there's only one agency that's actually decentralized and doesn't fall under special prosecutorial processes and does not fall under the Kami, the Posse Comitus Act, and it's uh, rearing its head. The most intensive random audit, the specific type that they do, that the IRS does, it only happens to about one in 30,000 tax returns. So what are the chances that not one, but two people who former President Trump considered foes would be targeted? The New York Times reports that both former FBI Director James Comey and former Deputy Director Andrew McCabe were subjected to this invasive audit. It actually is something that costs the person mm. who gets it a lot of money, even if they did nothing wrong. Joining us now is one of those two people, CNN senior law enforcement analyst and former deputy director of the FBI, Andrew McCabe. He's also the author of The Threat, How the FBI Protects America in the Age of Terror and Trump. Um, Andy, I know you've seen this. The IRS is saying it's ludicrous and untrue to suggest that senior IRS officials somehow targeted specific individuals for national research program audits. That's what this is called. What do you say to that? Well, Brianna, it's clearly not ludicrous. I mean, we're talking about a, uh, uh, a coincidence that, that really is almost impossible statistically. I think it raises some very interesting questions about the IRS and about how they're administering this program. And, you know, look, to be clear, like, I'm not suggesting that any high-powered or high-level official at the IRS uh, specifically did anything wrong. I'm simply saying that Americans need to be able to have trust and faith that the institutions they rely on are conducting their business in a fair and impartial manner. And there, there's an indication here that that might not be happening. Uh, I think it's appropriate for the IRS to do the responsible thing and look into it and determine whether or not um, something you know went awry in this program. So it's it's absolutely not ludicrous. It's responsible to look into it. And I look forward to the outcome of their inquiry. Andy, what were you thinking when you got this letter that you were being audited? Did you know that Comey had gone through the same thing? What did, what did you and your wife think? You know, nobody likes to get a letter from the IRS saying they're being audited, but that was really my only reaction. I had no idea that Jim Comey had been subjected to the same uh, audit. I didn't know that until the reporter who wrote the story contacted me kind of out of the blue. Uh, we got the letter, I think, in October of 2021. Um, and so the letter says on, you know, on its face, it says you've been randomly selected for this research program that's designed to, you know, give the IRS information about how people are meeting their tax obligations. So I just took it at face value and assumed that it was actually random. It wasn't until I found, about, I found out about Jim Comey's audit that I started wondering that like this, this can't possibly be random that the both of us were selected. The timing's very curious. In the case of Comey, it, he was told in 2019 it was going to be his 2017 tax return. And 2017, he had a big book deal. 2019, it turned out that Bill Barr you know, wasn't going to pursue what Trump wanted him to. Similarly, you had just been able to breathe a sigh of relief because your personnel record had been cleansed your pension had been reinstated. But my question to you is, this was 2021, right? When you found out that your 2019 tax return was going to be audited. Joe Biden is now in the White House. It's no longer the Trump administration. So what questions does that raise to you about if you think people were pulling the strings? I mean, do you think that there was some Trump appointee residual in the IRS who might have been doing something? 
So he got his pension back that he wasn't entitled to for what he did and what he's going to go down for. Now they're asking, could it be someone that President Trump appointed? And if you guys remember correctly, President Trump's taxes were seized illegally during his campaign, leaked by someone at the IRS. I want you to listen carefully and try to see what Scalia has to do with this, Durham, and this. And then we'll delve in. I'm doing a long show because tomorrow there is going to be no show. So for my archivist who's listening, make this a two-part show. Here we go. I think it's absolutely absolutely possible, Brianna. I think, um, look, a a lot of people stick around after the change of administrations, particularly in a place like the IRS. Um, The the occurrence of this one in 30,000 event twice to the same people who are basically targeted in the same way by the former president and continue to be targeted to this day, I'll I'll add, um, it's just it defies belief. And so is there is it possible that there's someone in the IRS who has an ability to influence this supposedly random process to go after people that they have some sort of an issue with? Um, yeah, I think that's possible. I think that's what the IRS needs to find out by conducting a fair and thorough investigation. Andy, thank you for being with us. Um, more to come on this story for <laughs> sure. So we'll be following it. All right. Thanks, guys. Joining us now is former IRS Commissioner John A. Koskinen. Um, Sir, I want to ask you, you hear the IRS here saying this is ludicrous. Do you agree? Well, I don't know if I would say it's ludicrous. It clearly is far out of the uh, normal uh, experience of the IRS uh, and this annual review they do to test the compliance of uh, the tax system and the non-compliance of the tax system. Uh, The audits that are selected are selected by a separate division uh, they're selected randomly. Uh, they're designed uh, to randomly audit taxpayers across the entire spectrum, including companies. Uh, so on the one hand, uh, it's a very carefully managed process uh, and reviewed. And I've got a lot of confidence in the IRS employees. It's a great workforce uh, that I had the privilege of working with for four years. But on the other hand, um, as uh, Mr. McCabe says, uh, it is um, odd, at least, uh, to see two uh, head of the former head of the FBI and his deputy uh, under great attack with a lot of scurrilous statements from the former president uh, suddenly show up in these randomly selected audits. Uh, they're up to usually about 13,000 audits a year over a three-year period to determine the tax gap. And that 13,000 years out of 150 million uh, individual taxpayers and over 200 million total returns. So it is I think from the standpoint of the IRS, important uh, for the inspector general, someone to take a look at all of this because it is important uh, for the public to be confident uh, that the IRS, as it has for years, uh, is treating all taxpayers fairly, is not targeting anyone, and is not subject to political, uh, uh, you know, either uh, manipulation or force. On the other hand, um, as everybody knows, with some of the things you think would never have happened, like the insurrection a year and a half ago, it's hard to say it's impossible. Hard to say it's impossible. Does the timing of these audits, does that raise any questions for you? For instance, Comey found out he was being audited right after Attorney General Bill Barr decided that he wasn't going to pursue charges for how Comey had uh, handled his memo, which was something that former President Trump wanted for Bill Barr to pursue. 
His audit year was 2017, which was when he'd had a lucrative book deal. McCabe found out he was being audited in 2021, but it was his 2019 tax return. And he found that out right after he was cleared, his personnel record was cleared, and his pension was reinstated. Um, I mean, are those things that just could be coincidence, or does that raise questions for you that the IG should be looking at? Well, uh, as I say, it, uh, uh, as I've uh, said in the past, you know, you can have a strange event once uh, to have it twice, in this case with two different individuals, uh, in a random process. Uh, certainly, it seems to me is worth looking at. As I say, I've got great confidence in the agency. It's a criminal violation uh, to target a taxpayer or do anything with the taxpayer's return other than normal course of business. So this would be something truly extraordinary and out of the ordinary. But I do think it's important for uh, the IG to take a look at it just to ensure uh, that the process ran as normal and that this is one of those uh, rare, unique circumstances that occurs, you know, in various ways in life. Uh, but it is, um, uh, you know, it is a little odd. Viewers may remember, uh, certainly, and this was an experience of yours in your time at the IRS, you became a, a boogeyman for Republicans when it came to accusations they had about your political bias as they saw it, or the political bias, I should say, of your predecessor at the IRS during the Obama administration. Um, what can those who are skeptical of the IRS motives take from this? Well, I think what they have to understand is there are only two political appointees at the IRS, the commissioner and the chief counsel. Everyone else is a dedicated career employee. Every year, employees take a, a course, a video course, which I took every year, uh, reminding them of the fact that no one has the ability or is authorized to even look at anybody's tax return, your brothers, your aunts, your uncles, uh, unless they have an authorization and a need to do it. So the system, ever since the famous enemies list of uh, President Nixon 50 years ago, the system is designed to protect every taxpayer's uh, return and every taxpayer's information. And the employees take that seriously. So I think that uh, it is, as I said, extremely unlikely this is what happened. But the fact that it's been given visibility and that it did happen, uh, it does seem to me uh, it's important for people to be satisfied internally as well as externally uh, that the system continues to run fairly and treat everyone equally. Former Commissioner of the IRS, John Koskin, and we appreciate your insight here. You're, You're one, one of so, so few people who has uh, been in that position. We thank you. So few people who have been in that position. So the IRS, uh, you know, in fact, I was actually audited. <laughs> I was audited for my 2012, 2013, all random, of course, 2014, 2015, and 2016, all random, of course, uh, tax return. I, I didn't have much, but I was completely audited. The, um, the Internal Revenue Service, it's important to understand where they derive from. Like, what is the history of the IRS? Many people will tell you, oh, it was done like this, it was done like that. But what is the actual history is important to know. Like, what is their origin story? Let's see. The IRS, or really its predecessor, 
was created around the time of the Civil War. Prior to the Civil War, all taxation in the United States, at least at the federal level, consisted of external taxes, specifically tariffs. And we had a system in place for administering those tariffs that involved customs officials at ports of entry and so on. In order to finance the Civil War, Congress enacted a series of what we sometimes refer to as internal taxes, property taxes, income taxes, and excise taxes imposed inside the United States on goods, services, people, etc. that were already here. Consequently, we needed a different bureaucracy in order to administer those taxes. So the predecessor of the Internal Revenue Service was created. Even though we repealed many of those internal taxes shortly after the end of the Civil War, we left that bureaucracy in place to administer the internal taxes that remained, and the rest is history. Eventually, we adopted the 16th Amendment, we created the modern income tax, and the bureaucracy grew from there. Well, the IRS's power has changed much in the way that power of many federal agencies has changed. The IRS has always been tasked with adopting rules to interpret and implement the Internal Revenue Code. But just as the rules and regulations of federal government agencies in general as of the start of the 20th century, couldn't necessarily carry the force and effect of law or could only carry the force and effect of law when they were promulgated pursuant to specific authority to fill a gap that Congress explicitly identified by statute. The same was true of the IRS, that any regulations that it adopted lacked the force and effect of law unless Potentially, they were promulgated pursuant to specific authority. All of that changed over time. In general, across the federal government, we saw a shift to rulemaking in the 1960s and the 1970s. Rulemaking became more prominent across agencies. Agencies started asserting the power to adopt broader regulations pursuant to general grants of rulemaking authority to administer statutes. And Congress started including in statutes more and broader grants of rulemaking power. Certainly the number of grants of rulemaking power given to the Department of Treasury and the IRS has expanded tremendously over time. The penalty provisions of the Internal Revenue Code were modified in the 1980s to give greater force, arguably, to Treasury regulations and IRS rulings. So the IRS, taxation without representation, but in fact, the IRS has been used as a tool to catch really, really bad people. Because apparently you can't use the military, right? You're not allowed to use anything the military finds. That's what they said. I'm going to take you to this uh, NDAA amendment now. I want you to think about it. Remember, we're talking about Durham. All right, let me get to page. You should, you should see what this congressional record has to say. So here we are in 2021 with uh, Congressman Adam Schiff. You know, Ed Buck's friend. You know, Ed Buck was arrested and charged and all this stuff. Had videos. You know, stuff like that, right? Guys, I can't fix the sound. I don't know what's going on with the sound. I have no idea. 
I am so sorry. I am so sorry. Some of you can hear me. Some of you can't. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Okay. So here we go. I'm going to read this out to you. Let me zoom in. Exclusion of evidence obtained without prior authorization. Section 271 of Title 10 of the United States Code is amended by adding to the end the following new subsection. Notwithstanding any other provision of law, any information obtained by or with the assistance of a member of the armed forces in violation of Section 1385 of Title 18 shall not be received in evidence in any trial. Now, this goes back to the Posse Comitus uh, Act. That's basically it. 18 USC, 18 USC 1385, right, clearly states that the use of Army, Navy, Marine Corps, Air Force, and Space Force as Posse Comitus. Whoever accepting cases under circumstances expressly authorized by the Constitution or Act of Congress willfully uses any part of the Army, the Navy, the Marine Corps, Air Force, or Space Force as a posse comitatus or otherwise to execute the laws shall be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than two years or both. In other words, Evidence that someone from the military that has been obtained cannot be provided as evidence in any trial, in any hearing or other proceeding before any court, grand jury, department, officer, agency, regulatory body, legislative committee, or other authority of the United States, a state, or political subdivision thereof. So if for some reason, right, they made this law, made this law, this is a big deal. Because I want us to think about this. Like, what is it that you activate it as? Like, how would you define that? This is a very good question. And then I want you to think of Durham. Origin of the Russia hoax. Remember, the whole Russia hoax was how they denied President Trump proper transition of power. I repeat, the Russia hoax is how they denied peaceful transition of power. To President Trump. The Russia hoax also allowed the previous administration to hijack our elections just in case they couldn't get him out through impeachment or by using General Flynn. Right? They needed proximity. See, it's always guilt by association. You see where I'm going with this? You see where I'm going with this? That's why people that are associated with really good people usually don't show that they're associated with really good people. You see, proximity. Because a wise man, the only man that has successfully brought on Rico, that's right, using the IRS, said, they're going to try to try to charge him with that. Which is why he probably should have pardoned himself. Not because he committed a crime, don't you understand me? Because these people are criminals. Not because he committed a crime. Don't you understand me? Because these people are criminals. They frame people. And don't you understand me? Because these people are criminals. They frame people. And don't you understand me? Because these people are criminals. They frame people. 
I hope you understand that. The frame job happens to everyone. I was framed with bullshit, right? I even had people use crimes that were committed against me against frame, framing people. That's what they do. I mean, the citizen log is there. Frame people. So if the military had in itself, but not been activated, you know, under the Posse Comitatus, right, obtained evidence of crimes, almost like, you know, servers being, I don't know, hijacked in Germany or something. I'm just saying anything, right? Or computer systems or maybe, I don't know, voting machines that are on a military base, which is considered federal property that maybe were seized and routers were taken, you know, stuff like that. See, that would, they would have to argue that that's under possible So if the military has actually obtained evidence of um, how Mayor Giuliani said, don't you understand me? Because these people are criminals. They frame people. So if the military has gained this, apparently, according to this new law that your lawmakers put through, right, all your good lawmakers, that um, they can't provide that as evidence in any court. Now, they go on throwing some shade, talking about what they really want. Now, listen to this. Here's their discussion. The chair recognizes the gentleman from California. Mr. Schiff, Madam Speaker, this amendment clarifies the authority of the military commission judges to order court processing at Guantanamo Bay to be broadcast over the internet. Let me talk about this. We have. This is a straightforward, non-controversial amendment that the House has passed twice by vote. The GAO, wait, hold on. The GAO has studied this issue and concluded there are no technical barriers to broadcasting proceedings on the internet, and it can be done while protecting classified information. This amendment comes down, uh, can, can, sorry, this amendment can, uh, comes down to simply whether or not we believe the American people have the right to observe the military commission proceedings, including against members of Al-Qaeda who planned the 9-11 attack. I believe that the families of victims, journalists, academics, NGOs, and any American interested should be able to follow the proceedings without flying to Guantanamo, a difficult and lengthy process at best. I also believe this amendment is important because these military commissions have, in fact, failed. After so many years, they have not delivered anything that could be called justice, but their distance hides the extent of their failings. As we work toward closing Guantanamo, which I strongly support, we should cease to hide the legal processes happening there. Madam Speaker, I urge a yes vote, and I reserve the balance of my time. Mr. Rogers of Alabama, Madam Speaker, I rise in opposition to this amendment. And he says, so interestingly, the Speaker Pro Tempore, the gentleman has been recognized for five minutes. Mr. Rogers of Alabama, Madam Speaker, the amendment allows some of the most hardened terrorists in the U.S. custody a platform to publicly broadcast their message, letting these vicious terrorists know there is a public audience for their hate will do far more harm than good. It is important to note that federal courts have consistently stuck to their guns against 
broadcasting major terrorism cases, such as the trial of Zacharias Mustaoi. I see no reason to make an exception for terrorists at Guantanamo. DOD has informed us they share these serious concerns and strongly oppose this amendment. Madam Speaker, I urge all of my colleagues to oppose the amendment, and I reserve the balance of my time. Mr. Schiff, Madam Speaker, I would simply point out that this amendment permits these judges to broadcast the proceedings so that people can witness them. It doesn't mandate that this be done in every case. I think these judges ought to have the discretion to do so. This amendment makes it very clear that GAO has studied this issue and found that it is more than technically feasible. The GAO says that they have the technology. Adam Schiff wants to air out Guantanamo cases. Roger says no because you're giving terrorists a platform. But Schiff says, oh, we should show some of them. I think it is important that the American people, particularly the victims of 9-11 who would like to witness these proceedings, be allowed to do so. The victims of 9-11 can't easily travel. Many of them can't travel at all to Guantanamo to review the proceedings. I think that the victims of that heinous terrorist attack should have the ability to face those and observe the proceedings against those who have been charged with those offenses. Madam Speaker, I reserve the balance of my time. Mr. Rogers of Alabama says, Madam Speaker, I have the right to close and I reserve my balance of my time. Reserves the time to close, blah, blah, blah. Mr. Schiff says, Madam Speaker, I urge a yes vote to this amendment to increase transparency into the proceedings in Guantanamo and allow the victims of 9-11 to observe the proceedings as many of them would like to, and I yield back the balance of my time. Mr. Rogers says, I'm concerned that the adoption of this amendment would create a major recruiting platform for terrorists and create security risks. The Biden administration is opposed to this amendment. I oppose this amendment. And I urge all of my colleagues to vote no. I yield back the balance of my time. So they put it on the table in 2021. They wanted Guantanamo Bay to be streamed live. So then you have to ask yourself the question. Biden says no. Republicans are saying no. A lot of people are saying no. Adam Schiff is pushing, pushing, pushing yes. But we all know that on the 25th of March, 2020, we were advised by a study that Building 7 was a controlled demolition and not part of a terrorist attack. So one would have to ask, why would he want Guantanamo Bay to be live-streamed? Oh, is it because that's where they want to take President Trump when they indict him? You have to think about that for a second. You have to think about it really, really hard. Why are they pushing this? Now, in other news, I was getting briefed this morning because I had a visitor visiting with some people that are very, very concerned about a few things happening in Ohio. So weird. I'm sorry I'm not having a show tomorrow because I really have to get to work. What's really, really weird is that Biden decided, of all places, to go to Cleveland, Ohio to talk about how unions have no money. Like, why would he go to Ohio to talk about not having Union dollar, dollar, paper dollar, something I told you in 2019, they're broke. He's pushing, he's pushing to give money to the unions to cover their back. And see, someone, I, I saw it half asleep 
I read a text where someone was like, oh my gosh, this is a 5 chess. They've been printing money like crazy. They've been spending your printed money overseas to come back to them. They've exhausted the unions like I told you they did in 2019. They spent every last dime. And, you know, and then this guy comes to my neighborhood. The American labor movement have worked for so many years. They are the real heroes. Okay, aside from the fact with who he met with, and I was getting debriefed this morning to find out exactly what they were discussing, and I'm kind of concerned, but not really. God's got my back. Look at this stage. It literally looks like a bad TV show being taped on a very low budget. I want you to just pay attention to the cheering and the orchestration. Seriously, right here. I'm just going to rewind it just a couple of seconds. Please take a look, good hard look at it. And it almost please looks like you've got 4K TV where it kind of kills the moment because it doesn't look so blurry. So it looks really like it is. And it looks completely staged. Please pay attention. Well, let me start off by saying I'd get in trouble with my mother were she here if I didn't say it. Excuse my back when I'm speaking. I apologize. Number one, you have my <laughs> shooting and the death of Jalen Walker. The Justice Department and Civil Rights Division of the FBI field office in Akron, Ohio, and the local U.S. Attorney's Office are closely monitoring and viewing what happened. The FBI continues to coordinate with state and local partners to provide resources and specialized skill. If the evidence reveals potential violations of federal criminal statutes, the Justice Department will take the appropriate action. And I just want you to know what's going to happen. Now, now for today's program. Thank you, Bill, for that introduction and uh, for the welcome on behalf of the Iron Workers Local 17 here in Cleveland. Iron workers are with me the first time I ran as a 29-year-old kid from the Senate. And you're all crazy. <laughs> then we got a guy named Tommy Shrank, who was the president of a local in Delaware. And he said, let's go out and meet some of the guys and women. We went out to a built construction site. We went up a makeshift elevator. We went up 13 floors. They're sitting on 18-inch beams eating their lunch. I'm thinking to myself, my God, these guys are supporting me. They're the guys I grew up with. You know, the people you heard speak earlier today, and I apologize, I'm going to repeat some of what they said. But, you know, we all come from the neighborhood. We all come from, no, I mean it. I, uh, I was born in Scranton, Pennsylvania, which was a union town, mostly coal mine union town, a lot more. My, uh, my great-grandfather was a, what was, worked in the mines, was a mining engineer, and Everybody, uh, everybody there, there was only one word you heard most often in my family. Not a joke. Most important word. It wasn't unions. It was dignity. Dignity. Everyone's entitled to be treated with dignity. My dad. Then we moved to a little town. When Cole died, we moved to a town called Claymont, Delaware, just across the line in, from Pennsylvania, where the Delaware River bends. And, you know, uh, Used to have over 6,000 uh, 6, steel workers. We're steel. It's all gone now. All of it gone. Used to be a company town, literally. The hills were all company stores, company, uh, uh, company buildings. But it's gone. And uh, the union movement began to just crumble. 
in Delaware and in Claymont. And my dad never belonged to a union, but I say this to the front end. My dad was a salesperson, and he came down from Scranton when coal died. He wasn't a coal miner, but he worked in sales up there. And uh, I'll never forget, we lived in a, a three-bedroom split-level home, like a lot of suburban areas developing in the early 50s, mid-50s. And there were, I think, 38, 40 homes. And, they were, and uh, we had four kids in the family and a grandpa living with us and mom and dad. And the walls were thin. And my dad, uh, one night I could tell he was really restless. I could hear him and sort of not banging, but leaning up against the wall in the room in my room. Next morning, I asked my, my, my dad had an expression. He said, Joey, you never complain and never explain. Just get up. Just get up. And I was wondering what was wrong. And I asked my mom. She said, the company says no pensions. No pensions. And so, you know, a lot of you come from families like mine. A lot of people stood behind me. Richie Neal from the state of Massachusetts. He is, as my uncle would say, Richie is... He is union from belt buckle to shoe sole, man. And uh, But all the folks you heard speak today care about it because we know what it's like to be deprived of your dignity. We know what it's like to have a father or a mother have to put their head down when they know they can't afford a thing for their kid that they need, whether it's a prescription or whether it's just plain being able to go off to school. And the point I want to make is this. We all understand this. And when I ran for office this time, and I've been a union supporter for my whole career, but I made a promise. I mean it sincerely, and Marty knows this. I guaranteed when the, you know, when the Fair Labor Standards Act was passed and back in the 30s and Roosevelt came along, it didn't say unions are okay. It says we should encourage unions. <laughs> encourage unions. Because when unions do well, everybody does well. Everybody does well. Not a joke. Not a joke. So here's the deal. The deal was quite simple. When I ran, I was criticized for the basis upon which I ran. I said, I'm running for three reasons. One, to restore the soul of America, the decency and honor of this country. <laughs> and two, to rebuild the backbone of the country. The backbone of the country are the working women and men, the middle class. And, you know, there's a middle class for one reason, American unions. That's the only reason there's a middle class. Not a joke. That's a fact. Not a joke. And when the middle class does well, everybody does well. People have a way up and the wealthy still do very well. And so, folks, the third reason I ran was to unify the country, to unify it. That's been the harder part of it right now. No, I'm serious. Because we've become so divided. So divided in this. But one thing we were divided on when we ran. And, you know, I want to thank Mayor Bibb for the passport into the city. But uh, we, we, we were divided on the question we're celebrating today. And, folks, how about actually having a union guy as Secretary of Labor? Isn't that something? Thank you, Marty. And I know we have a fantastic Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, Cleveland's own Marsha Fudge. She's, she wishes she was going to be here. I'm also honored to be here with Senator Sherrod Brown, a great champion at working folks. He really is. He really is. 
And thank you also for the incredible Democratic members of Congress here. Marcy Captor, God love you, Marcy. You are the best. She does it all, unions and foreign policy. And for you think I'm joking. I'm not joking. She really knows more about foreign policy. She's forgotten more than most members of Congress know. And Chantel Brown, can just remember me when you're president, okay? All right. Congratulations. Look, and Richie Neal is not only a strong, strong union supporter and been a great supporter of this legislation, but he's chairman of the most powerful committee in the United States Congress, the House Ways and Means Committee. The guys with the money, the guys with the money. And he's led on labor issues, labor issues for decades. You know, while they couldn't be here, I also want to thank Senator Tim Ryan, future Senator Tim Ryan. And Senator Patty Murray, of the state of Washington, for their incredible work on this legislation. With everyone's leadership and with their votes, and most of all, with the unrelenting commitment of labor and all of you, this historic day is made possible. And it really is historic. This was $90 billion, okay? But it's small in comparison to the bailouts of businesses and major corporations and banks. And folks, I'm here today to talk about the issues that affects every single American in their retirement. People around the country wake up every day wondering whether they've saved enough to provide for themselves and their families before they stop working. Working a job that provides basic dignity. A good middle-class job, you can raise a family on a job that provides a dignified retirement and will give you peace of mind. Think of all the people, and many of you, went to bed at night putting your head in the pillow and saying, am I going to be all right? Is my family going to be all right? Is my wife or my husband or my child, they're going to be okay? It's a dignified retirement with your spouse or the home and your community. You worked and lived for your whole life. But the reality is for so many people, the goalposts keep moving. Unfortunately, that's probably Trump calling me. I hear, I hear that sound there. Unfortunately, that's probably Trump community. You worked and lived for your whole life. But the reality is for so many people, the goalposts keep moving. Unfortunately, that's probably Trump calling me. Is that, I'm not lying. I hear I hear that sound there. So many people, the goalposts keep moving. Unfortunately, that's probably Trump calling me. Is that, I'm not lying. I hear I hear that sound there. Unfortunately, this happens to people who need it most, working people in this country. A lot of politicians like to talk about how they're going to do something about it. Well, I'm here today to say we've done something about it. And I've kept their promise. I campaign to restore the backbone of this country, the middle class and unions, because I know this. The middle class built American unions, built the middle class of today. I'm keeping a promise. One of the most significant achievement union workers and retirees have received in over 50 years, and that's not hyperbole. For years and years, union workers have been driving trucks from factories to stores, bagging your groceries, constructing the buildings, bridges, roads we need, and so much more. The iron workers, bricklayers, carpenters, laborers, plumbers, truck drivers, musicians, I might add, food workers, and so much more. 
And with each paycheck you earn, their employers put money into their pension plans. These workers work hard today to secure retirement for tomorrow. That's what it's all about. Now, a lot of businesses aren't able or willing to run their own pension plans. And in some industries, workers are employed by several different employers over the course of a year or longer. For example, we see that in transportation, construction, and entertainment. So working with a union that represents their employees, businesses in the same industry often come together to form what's called a motor employer union. I know you know this, but people listening to this on television may not know this. Pension plans that serve 11 million Americans across the country. And to make sure these pensions are managed responsibly and to protect the participating workers and retirees, the federal government overseas then ensures the plans. But we've seen the risk of millions of workers face as they watch their hard-earned pensions turn into broken promises. We saw it before the pandemic and the economic crisis that followed. Millions of retirees were at risk of losing their retirement security through no fault of their own, based on conditions and unrelenting attacks on unions that were taking place. 200 motor employee pension plans for two to three million workers and retirees were going insolvent. What that means to those two or three million workers, they face painful cuts to the benefits they counted on and for the dignified security of retirement. You just heard from Bill what it's like. Work 30, 40, 50 years, working hard every single day, doing everything to provide for your family. Track every dollar on that paycheck for groceries, mortgage, and hopefully for family vacation maybe one day. And knowing when it's time to retire, your pension you earn will be there. Knowing that together there's Social Security benefits, that pension will continue a good middle-class life for you in retirement. For some, just my dad would say, just a little peace of mind. But for folks at home, imagine losing 50 or 60% of that pension through absolutely no fault of your own. Imagine what it does. Imagine how they need to launder money again. Remember, I told you in 2019, Amalgamated Bank has exhausted all the capital. Everyone who is part of a union should ask for the financials. Why are we bailing them out with tax dollars? It is illegal. It is illegal to use federal tax dollars to bail out unions. It is illegal because unions are considered private. They are not a federal responsibility. This is illegal and people are allowing it to happen. And the question people should ask is, the IRS is on top of all these losers. This is how they got Al Capone and a bunch of other people. This is how RICO happens. But who else? Because the SEC, and they thought that President Trump was running in 2012, bailed them out. They didn't get bailed out. The SEC said do it. And Obama couldn't pay it. He knew he was on the chopping block. But guess who walked in? Wilbur Ross came in as an angel investor. And Bill Clinton's former campaign guy, he saved them. Now, I told you guys in 2019, this was a very big deal. So the unions have no eligibility to receive federal bailouts because they're not, it's illegal. It is illegal use any federal tax dollars or resources for unions. So why is a bailout being pushed when it's illegal? This is where you guys need to get on the phone. And for those of you that have unions, 
you should be sending letters asking for the financial because they're all going to end up in Brussels and some other thing. And it's called like a green bank, something, something. I did articles on that. You can go read it. The bottom line is the way that they can easily launder funds is by using the union money. Now the union money is being tracked back because AOC is under IRS investigation. Schumer's under IRS investigation. These are all coincidences, of course. But again, if you pay attention to the minute details, you'll see that these investigations are all stemming from amalgamated bank. You know, I'm just good at Googling. I'm just good at Googling. Amalgamated bank gets all over 90% of union contribution. AFL-CIO funded the domestic terrorist group, BLM. They paid for the plaza. They paid for the signs, one of the biggest unions. They played a pivotal and very crucial role in stealing the elections. Again, like I've always said, follow the money. That will never drop it because the problem that we have is no matter how righteous one may be, money is a God that many serve. And many will give you excuses as to why they serve this God. Uh, but that is the power that their God gives them. You see, Amalgamated Bank, I've talked about it. The AFL-CIO talked about it. Told you about, you know, you should look at my old articles. The funny thing is he came to Cleveland and he met with a few very important people. And I got a lot of information this morning. It seems like very upset. I mean, why would he come to Cleveland to talk about unions? Cleveland's the only blue city. Why wouldn't he go to a more unionized place like, I don't know, Indiana or Pennsylvania? Why Cleveland? That's right. You better run, bitches. See, this is the problem. People are getting caught. Amalgamated bank, amalgamated bank, amalgamated bank. Take a look at it. Look at where their financials are. Probably already an SEC investigation. Maybe you should go look at that. Maybe then you'll find out exactly what Durham's probe really is and what's really happening and why they are pushing so fast. They failed to resurrect the power of love with, uh, you know, this abortion thing. They all, oh, I'm going to pay for abortions. Like, how, how much of a loser are you to be like, hey, company that I work for, I need you to pay for me to go somewhere to have an abortion because I'm a slut. I'm just saying. Because, I mean, if you legitimately have a medical condition or were raped, you wouldn't tell your employer that your doctor would do the abortion, even if there is an abortion ban, if it is about your health. Let's be straight about it, okay? You could choose not to have it, but that would be recommended for your safety, right? Right? So, again, you've got to look at behind the words. You have to see the intentions behind the words and the virtue signaling. The, the, the corporations really tried to rally people up. Look at us. We're going to like totally pay to travel you to get a push. Oh my God, what if I'm a slut and I get pregnant? I can't get one. And it's, <laughs> it's like, are we seriously talking about this right now? But it makes sense. They needed to activate them, but they lost control. Lost control of the people. Lost control to get the summer of love going. So they're going to instigate it a different way. Why mess with the lefties that will go and trash and steal Chanel bread and, and Louis Vuitton milk because they're so oppressed? Why not activate the right? They're stupid. 
They have guns. This is the easiest way we can take them down. We'll get the right. Flip out. And they'll do the summer of love for us. You think I'm joking? You think I'm joking? You guys are so pissed. You're ready to steamroll there too. Hey, I've, I, I can tell you. Yeah, there's so many times. And I'm like, dude, it's like 400 people. We could go drag them out by their hair. But you can't do that, right? Because we're supposed to be civilized. Even though you want to drag them out of there and say, you don't deserve that spot, you have to be civilized. They have so many legal barriers to disallow us from actually removing them. They've made it almost impossible to remove them. So we have to think outside of the box. We have to think of a way to set a fire around their box to smoke them the fuck out. And right now what you're seeing is them being smoked out. You are not taking the 40,000 for view if you don't understand this. So hopefully. My archivist will be uh, splitting this up into two episodes of two hours. So that way you can garner what I am trying to tell you. Because again, I'll remind you what the mayor said. This is why he probably should have pardoned himself. Not because he committed a crime. Don't you understand me? Because these people are criminals. They frame people. That's what they do. They frame people. And they will frame every single person guilt by association. Every single person they can, they will frame because they need it. They want it. They crave it. And what is it that they crave? Well, they crave the truth doesn't come out. And they crave war. You have to do it. They need the right people to do it. They need the people on the right to pull out their guns. They need the people on the right to get upset and go drag them out by the hair. That's what they want. They want you to stand up with your guns. Don't do it. You were very effective in your lawsuits with your mandates. You were very effective as a sticker braid. And, and I, was work, I was supposed to be working on a case. A, a case was trying to be formulated a couple months ago for all of us to give it a, a, another push. Because every time you light a fire around the box, the barricade they created to themselves, they smoke themselves out and they lose. Unfortunately, there were delays, you know, stuff like that. But again, once again, I say this. You need to listen to what they're saying. You need to be seeing what they're doing and then think, why are they doing this now? What is the benefit of this happening now? Why would they want to bail out the union? Well, there's many reasons. I'm Brittany Lewis with Fourteen News. News. At Thursday's White House press briefing, Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre was asked about a proposal by the National Education Association to replace the word mother with, quote, birthing parent. First Lady Jill Biden is a member of the union, and Vice President Kamala Harris spoke at their event last week before they debated the proposal in a closed-door session. The White House expressed their support for the organization, but avoided the question of whether they approve of that change in terminology when pressed. Listen in to the exchange. Just a different topic. The largest labor union in the country, the National Education Association, had been proposing a, a resolution for future contracts to replace the word mother with birthing parent. What does the president think about proposals like that one? So we're not the NEA, and I would refer you to their team about that particular specific. The vice president specific. just spoke at that conference, though. The first lady's a teacher. Yeah, the president yeah. says he's the she's most pro-labor president she's, ever. Does absolutely. he support proposals like that one? Does he think that is and, a, an important priority for... And the first lady is a proud member of the NEA. I am not going to speak about uh, a an organization's um, uh, 
policy or change of policy. I am not their spokesperson, not something that I'm going to do. Yes, the vice president was there on Tuesday. She spoke at NEA. And when they did, uh, uh, when they did regular order, when they did their regular business, she left. So she was also not part of that discussion. Look, this is a policy change. Uh, that is not something that I, I can speak to. I, I refer, refer you to, to NEA. Yeah. I mean, why would the White House have any involvement in policy changes of the unions? And of course, conveniently, Dr. Jill left when she needed to. But then you get questions like this today. While I was doing my show, by the way. Asked about two administration officials. First of all, given the revelations that my colleagues wrote about regarding the uh, actions of the IRS uh, over the last several years, does the president retain the confidence? Uh, does, the, does the IRS commissioner have the president's confidence? So I'll say this, we don't comment on enforcement actions taken by the IRS. So just the first thing. I, no, I know. I, I just want to, since you gave me the opportunity, Michael, I want to take it. Uh, so any 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 questions on that, I would refer, uh, refer you to the IRS. That's for anyone who has any questions on that. As you know, the IRS commissioner, uh, his term is up in November, uh, but I don't have any updates uh, on that. Uh, can't speak to any, anything more. Besides, you know, we would refer you to the IRS on that specific thing. And he is going to be up in November, so I will leave it there. But, but between now and November, the president still is confident that that he's able to, to fairly and, and, you know, without bias, you know, do the things that, a, that the IRS does objectively. Look, again, I'm going to say that um, he is up in November. Um, he is a commissioner. He does. Uh, he is a commissioner of the IRS, uh, part of the administration. Uh, so we're going. I'm just going to leave it at that. And then, uh, and then on the uh, director of the Secret Service, who just announced resignation today. Obviously, the the uh, Secret Service has been in the news of late, given the um, uh, some of the testimony in front of the, the uh, January sixth uh, committee as well. Um, do you, is there any relationship between uh, the, the director's departure now and the timing of some of those uh, revelations from the committee? Did, did, the, did the White House know about his intention to, to retire before uh, before the, that testimony uh, last week, I guess? So, Michael, I would say that there's no relations at all. This has been in talks for several months. Uh, I, for his uh, his retirement, I believe, since April, since so before uh, the January six hearing, and for, as 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 I as I know, he is headed to the private sector. So, so it, it is, is not connected, connected at all. This oh. has been in talks for. Several it's totally not connected at all, and they can't fire the commissioner because remember, didn't they say that the president can't fire people in his place, or else they put a special counsel? Do you remember that? This is why they have to put up with the IRS. They can't get rid of the commissioner. Remember how they said that the, the executive team has no right to remove people that they believe are not doing their job or conducting it differently. So now that Biden wants to get rid of this IRS guy, who, by the way, the IRS is also after Hunter Biden, he can't. He can't. So now they're all tight with money. All of their financials are coming out. You've got the left because they were earwigged <laughs> to talk about their financials, right? Uh, you've got all of that coming out. And so then the reporter's like, well, why don't you just fire him? Are you confident that he could do his job? And it's like, well, you know, his term is up in November of 2020. So fascinating. See, people aren't really paying attention to the news. They're paying attention to the gimmicky shit. You need to be paying attention to the actual news. Actual news. Like, you know, 11 years ago. 11 years ago, almost to this day, 
this was put out. And then you have to wonder, wait, did they survive or did they die? I'm sorry. I'm confused. And you're going to be like, what? Conspiracy theory, conspiracy theory. <laughs> you know, we do have facial recognition and we do have the Office of Management and Budget that has faces, DNA, iris scans, fingerprints, and names. Even if you change it. Yeah, we do. The night before the launch, Beaujolais repeated his warning. But with the previous shuttle having just set a record for delays, NASA's leaders were impatient. Beaujolais' bosses told NASA the O-ring evidence in the memo was inconclusive. Challenger's launch was ordered. A puff of black smoke at liftoff was the ominous sign that Beaujolais was right. The O-rings had already failed. The smoke appeared when they burned. After a few seconds, a jet of flame appeared. A post-accident report by NASA described it with passionless precision. The plume is seen here impinging directly onto the surface of the external tank and the lower aft strut at 60.248 seconds. The sideways flame burned like a welder's torch through the gap left by the blown O-rings. It pierced the giant orange fuel tank and fuel began streaming out. Still, no one knew anything was wrong. Not until Challenger, its astronauts, and its teacher in space had flown for 73 seconds. At 73.191 seconds, a flash was observed between the ET and orbiter that was immediately followed by the start of total vehicle breakup at 73.213 seconds. During the next 100 milliseconds, additional flashes occur in the SRB forward attach area. As the ET broke up, the released fluids vaporized rapidly, producing an expanding cloud of gases, vapors, and cryogenic fluid with embedded debris and localized combustion of mixed gases. No shock wave or other evidence of a violent explosion was detected in the imagery. Illumination from a combination of SRB plume radiance, reflected sunlight, and peripheral burning of gases gives the cloud the appearance of a fireball. By 73.6 seconds, the main engines were in automatic shutdown mode as a result of reduced propellant pressures. The last telemetry from Challenger was received 73.618 seconds after launch. The actual vehicle breakup was essentially obscured from view by the vapor cloud which abruptly enveloped the vehicle. Hundreds of fragments were noted exiting the ET cloud. Those identified included the shuttle main engines, the left wing, crew cabin, and both SRBs. What was happening to the crew at this moment? They were still alive. Challenge is fast, launch is fast. It's bang, and then it's a two minute ride down. And you're conscious, we know that. Astronaut Story Musgrave told me the crew survived in that white cloud. It was Challenger's fuel tank that exploded. The shuttle itself just broke apart. The crew compartment with its seven living occupants was intact. The initial path of the crew cabin from the vapor cloud carried it across the path of an adjacent contrail, clearly revealing its truncated form and attitude. The left wing became visible at 78.531 seconds. The main engines and crew cabin are also identifiable. It took two minutes and 45 seconds for the crew cabin to hit the water. The impact speed was 207 miles an hour. A NASA statement released after the accident reads, the forces to which the crew were exposed during orbiter breakup were probably not sufficient to cause death or serious injury. And later, NASA is unable to determine positively the cause of death of the Challenger astronauts, but has established that it is possible but not certain that the loss of consciousness did occur in the seconds following the orbiter breakup. 
Musgrave, who is a medical doctor and surgeon, is quite certain. You died when you hit the water. You know that. You think so? That's always been controversial. I don't know, sir. There's nothing controversial about that. Yeah, he died when you hit the water. At the bottom of the ocean, investigators found that some of the crew's emergency oxygen masks had been turned on. Said another astronaut, Scobie fought for any and every edge to survive. He flew that ship without wings all the way down. They were alive. You could have lost consciousness at that altitude if it depressurized for a little while. But then, no, there's all kinds of evidence that you died when you hit the water. Not because he committed a crime, don't you understand me? Because these people are criminals. They frame people. They frame people. And they make up deaths. And they convince people. Or they come out and say, you know, everyone's sobbing for it. This is great. We get a lot of pull. This is the way we should go. That's, that's usually how it goes. I mean, I would suggest. Don't leave any crisis. Right? Crisis, you got to take advantage of it. That's the way it is always. Crisis, crisis, crisis. It's the best stuff. You get the most bang for your buck when people don't know and when people are not paying attention and when people aren't listening. Because if you listen to what they're saying, you'll see that they're in full panic mode right now. And everything they did to constrain the previous president is killing their foe. All in due time, and it does take time. Because we're not trying to have some arrest so people can woo and wah. This isn't a game, guys. But it is game theory. Not a game, but it's game theory. Welcome to the revolution, you guys. We will not comply with the institutions. Thick illusion, no, we won't be televised. Welcome to the revolution. We will not comply.